You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Okay, let's turn to God's Word, uh, the book of Job, and uh, chapter 4. Now, I don't uh, have the words on the screen, so if you don't have a Bible, there's, I think there's a couple still left at the back, but I will read these out. We're going to look at chapters 4 and 5. Um, they are <coughs> difficult, uh, or at least, yes, no, no, they are, they are difficult because there's something that goes on here that's quite strange. Job has experienced all this trouble, okay? He's lost his family. He's lost his health. He's lost his wealth. Uh, his wife is telling him to curse God. He's sitting on a rubbish dump outside the town. His friends are around. Um, there's been silence for about seven days at this disaster that has befallen him. And he then speaks, and in chapter 3 says, basically, why was I born? This is, this is just so rubbish. Why was I born? And his friends now begin to speak. And the first one to speak is a man called Eliphaz the Temanite. And when you read through chapters 4 and 5, Eliphaz's first speech it makes, for me as a Christian, it makes me very uncomfortable because there's a lot of things in it. I go, yeah, that's right, that's right, that's the kind of thing I would say. And yet, it's wrong. Now, Eliphaz is the oldest. He's a philosopher. He seems to have seen and done everything. In his speech, he does all the right things at one level. He encourages, he shares, he speaks about God, he gives good advice, he seems to be empathetic, sympathetic. He's a master of words, and he uses them all very carefully, at least at first glance. In fact, even more than this, his words are quoted by Paul in the New Testament. So, in 1 Corinthians three eighteen to 19, Paul cites Eliphaz chapter 5, and verse 13, he catches the wise in their craftiness and the sky, schemes of the wily are swept away. <clears throat> Eliphaz seems to give good advice. He says, you're a good man, you're a pious man, don't lose heart, you're suffering, but that's all part of God's discipline and correction. Don't worry, it will all end, be patient, and it will all turn out right, and God is good. And I don't think if, if all of us who are Christians here, I think, well, that's, that's pretty good advice. That seems to make sense. And yet, God is not pleased with what Eliphaz says, and I'll show you that in a moment. What's interesting here as well is that Satan and God, in the first two chapters, discuss Job's character. Now, Job and his friends discuss God. And that discussion is not as black and white as you and I might like to make out. Those of us who are used to speaking in cliches, we need to be very, very careful. And that's why it's good to discuss things together. And dare I say it, to discuss things passionately. Uh, myself and Annabelle and Maria were having a discussion last night. And uh, Maria's cake was in the oven. And it was well done by the time we finished the discussion. But it's still lovely. It's lovely carrot cake. Uh, if you go into the student lunch, you'll enjoy it. 
But it's good to do that, to discuss things passionately and to discuss God passionately and to think and try and work out, wait a minute, what's happening here? What's going on? So, let me read, first of all, uh, chapter 4 of Job. Then Eliphaz the Temanite replied, if someone ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? But who can keep from speaking? Think how you have instructed many, how you have strengthened feeble hands. Your words have supported those who stumble. You have strengthened faltering knees. But now trouble comes to you, and you are discouraged. It strikes you, and you are dismayed. Should not piety be your confidence, and your blameless ways your hope? What Eliphaz is saying here, first of all, is you must practice what you preach. He begins with a tribute to Job. He says, Job, you've instructed many. Job, you've strengthened the weak. Job, your words have supported those who have stumbled. You've strengthened faltering knees. But then in verses 4 and 5, he says, well, why don't you practice what you preach? You've done this to other people. Why don't you take on board your own advice? You're the encourager. Why don't you encourage yourself? Now, one of the problems with this is very, it's very straightforward. Job, or Eliphaz, is showing gross insensitivity to Job's situation. When you go on to… Um, well, in fact, I'll read on into verse 7. Consider now who being innocent has ever perished, where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. At the breath of God they are destroyed. At the blast of His anger they perish. The lions may roar and growl, yet the teeth of the great lions are broken. The lion perishes for lack of prey, and the scubs of the lioness, cubs of the lioness are scattered. Now, verse 9, at the breath of God they are destroyed is just crass insensitivity on Eliphaz's part because some of Job's children were killed in what's called a Sirocco, a, a really wild wind, the wind that swept away his family. Verse 7 is doubly cruel. Consider now who being innocent has ever perished. Where were the upright ever destroyed? And he's saying, and it's not really very subtle, he's saying, your children died. Innocent people don't die like that. Therefore, your children were not innocent. You are responsible for the death of your children. So, in coming to me and saying you practice uh, what you preach, he's actually saying to him, it's your fault. Tying in with that, those verses we read, verses 7 to 11, the second principle, you reap what you sow. He's saying there's an ordered moral universe. God is a just God and a good God, That theme is repeated throughout the Bible, Psalm 1, the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, Mark 4.24, Jesus says, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Paul, Galatians 6.7, do not be deceived, God cannot be mocked, a man reaps what he sows. Psalm 37.25, I was young and now I'm old, yet I've never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging bread. And so there's a principle that you reap something one day, when you sow something, one day you will reap it. So, um, you are a teenage boy and your parents allow you, and, or, you, or you do it anyway, you watch loads and loads and loads of internet pornography and it's filling your head with loads of stuff. When you're a 30-year-old man or a 40-year-old man, it's really destroying you. Or you eat loads and loads of junk food and you basically destroy your body later on and so on. There's a basic principle that we accept as true. 
And yet, there's still something in us that says, wait a minute, this is not right. And what, what, what he said was not right. There's a great Peanuts cartoon um, where Lucy says to Charlie Brown, uh, there's one thing you're going to have to learn. You reap what you sow. You get out of life what you put into it. No more and no less. And Snoopy mutters, I'd kind of like to see a little margin for error. And that's kind of where all of us are at, because you reap what you sow, you get out of life what you put into it. It's all kind of good, wholesome advice, and there's, of course, an element of truth in it. But we'd like there to be something more. And I think what's wrong with what Eliphaz says is, and this is where the subtlety comes in, it's he takes the doctrine too far. He reverses it. He says, instead of you reap what you sow, he's really saying what you reap is always because of what you have sown. So if you reap disaster, you must have sown evil. It's too logical, it's too cold, it's too clinical, and to counsel like this is a disaster. There was a minister, there was, uh, um, some of you will remember a long time ago, uh, two girls, Holly Wells and Jessica Chapman, who were killed when they were out playing on a Sunday. And there was a minister who actually said this and put it in writing and made it public, and it was horrendous. This is what he said. Had the parents of Holly Wells and Jessica Chapman kept the Lord's Day, their daughters would still be alive. They would have spent the day at rest or in the private and public worship of God and not been wandering the countryside for whatever evil befell them. It's true, but it's absolutely crass and grossly insensitive. And even though it is true, it is grossly wrong. And that's what's happening here. Like the man who was brought to Jesus, and the, uh, he was asked, Jesus was asked, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? The problem is that we do not see everything. We do not know what is best for us. We do not see how God is working in the world. We do not see, as Job did not see, the conflict between God and the devil. There is a broader picture than cause and effect. The friends of Job infer from his suffering that he has sinned. Job infers from his innocence that God is unjust. We need to recognize there is a much, much better, bigger picture, and that's why all of us should be incredibly careful about rushing too quickly into judgment about other people's situations or our own. Psalm 73, if you read through that psalm, the psalmist does not see the whole picture, and so his emotions are all over the place. There is an eternal perspective, but we operate on the basis that a visible effect must come from an obvious cause, and that does lead to heresy. That does lead to a man who can say, if your children had not been out playing on a Sunday, they wouldn't be dead. That does lead to the heresy of health and wealth teaching, where people are taught, if you're good to God, God will be good to you. If you believe in God, God will give you this. But many backsliders prosper materially because that is what they devote their energies to. Natural causes and material values go there. And in politics, you get people who think, and not just in politics, well, the poor have only themselves to blame because there is truth in the fact that some people are poor because they are lazy or because um, they they haven't um, worked wisely or whatever. But then a sweeping generalization is made about everyone. And so you go, well, I know a person who, 
you know, is on the scrounge, and therefore all poor people are basically on the scrounge. The poor of themselves to blame, the sick of themselves to blame, the good guys win, the bad guys lose. Therefore, if you're going through a hard time, it's because you're a loser. And the Christian screams out, or should scream out, absolutely that this is perverse and wrong teaching. So there was two things that were said that were truisms, but were wrong. One was practice what you preach, one was reap what you sow. And the third, verse 12, a word was secretly brought to me. My ears caught a whisper of it. Amid disquieting dreams in the night, when deep sleep falls on men, fear and trembling seized me and made all my bones shake. A spirit glided past my face and the hair on my body stood on end. It stopped, but I could not tell what it was. A form stood before my eyes and I heard a hushed voice. Can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can a man be more pure than his maker? If God places no trust in his servants, if he charges his angels with error, how much more those who live in houses of clay, whose foundations are in the dust, who are crushed more readily than a moth, between dawn and dusk they are broken to pieces, unnoticed they perish forever, are not the cords of their tent pulled up so that they die without wisdom? Here, Eliphaz is saying, God told me. God told me this. And listen, you know, when someone says God told you, there is no argument, is there? Because if if someone comes up to me and says, David, God told me this, I can either go, no, he didn't, and you're lying. Or I can say, yeah, God told you, but it's wrong. Or God, so God is wrong. So it's the ultimate card to always play. You know, you have an argument with somebody and you say, ah, God told me. Argument over. You have to be really careful about playing that card. In fact, you mustn't play it as a card. How do we know what God told us? Well, he says he had a strange dream. In fact, verse 15, he talks about his hair standing on end. Not an experience I've got a great deal of uh, awareness of, but it happens. Apparently, and I apologize to any of the medics, you can tell me if this is wrong, but I read this in a book and I saw it on the internet, so it must be true, (laughs) that apparently there is something called piloerection. It's a well-known psychological experience. I don't know about it, but those of you who are psychologists, you will know what it is. It apparently is a well-known psychological experience. It's when your hair does stand on end because you are so spooked that it can actually happen without gel. It, it can work. Now, what he's saying is, what, what Eliphaz is saying is, I had this dream, and God said this, and this is God's word to you. A spirit glided past my face. There's a warning in here for us. Beware of using your own subjective experience to judge others and to say what God is saying. The revelation itself was ordinary. Can a mortal be more righteous than God? That's true. But Job didn't think that he was more righteous than God. It was a truism that was not relevant to the current situation. It's like, Imagine a doctor with a bedside manner who comes up to you and says, I've got the results of your test. You've got cancer. You're going to die. All people die anyway, so don't worry. It's a truism, but it's not exactly helpful. The frailty of man crushed like a moth. Uh, In verse 21, are not the cords of their tent pulled up? By the way, that's another thing that um, we can use Scripture to uh, apply Scripture in a way that doesn't make sense as well. And I'm only using that because I was once uh, camping along the west, uh, the west Coast, and it was a really stormy and windy night, and I was with 
uh, four friends, one of whom had just become a Christian. I'd just become a Christian. The other two hadn't. And we're in the tents, and we were being battered, going to be blown into the minch. And uh, I was doing my reading. And I, I read systematically using the machine calendar. And I read this, uh, Job 4. And I thought it was amazing. I'm in a tent, and it's blown. And I read, guys, that's what I've just read. Are not the cords of their tent pulled up so that they die without wisdom? And my friend who'd just become a Christian got out the tent. There was no way he was coming back. That was a word from the Lord, and he was, he was going to stand outside and make sure that we didn't get destroyed. Now, that's not the way that you use the Bible. God told me is a very dangerous argument to use. The premise is correct. The conclusion, your, serv- your suffering is deserved, is wrong. The advice for us there is, we have to be very careful about making conclusions about ourselves or about other people because our knowledge is limited and we don't know. We may feel something, we may think something, we may see something, and all of that may be correct, but we may not know absolutely. So, all our judgments and all our things we are things that we take on board with a degree of humility, I would say, not cynicism, but with a degree of humility. Now, we'll come on to see uh, uh, just a little bit more in chapter 5 and, and one of the ways that, that we can be helped, but I'm going to sing, or I'm not going to sing, we're all going to sing, Psalm 90 verses 1 to 12, uh, if I can come up on the screen, and we will sing it to the tune, Eventide. Lord, you have ever been our dwelling place before you made the world of time and space, before you made the mountains and the earth. You are eternal God. You gave man birth. Setting this in the context of reminding ourselves that in the midst of trouble, it is only God who knows everything and God who is the foundation. Let's stand and sing these words. Now, Eliphaz goes on, chapter 5, verse 1, call if you will, but who will answer you? To which of the holy ones will you turn? Resentment kills a fool and envy slays the simple. I myself have seen a fool taking root but suddenly his house was cursed. His children are far from safety, crushed in court without a defender. How painful that must have been for Job to hear this said because it had happened to his children. The hungry consume his harvest, taken even from among thorns, and the thirsty pant after his wealth. For hardship does not spring from the soil, nor does trouble sprout from the ground, yet man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward." A great blue song, born under a bad sign. I've been down since I was born, since the day of my birth, since I could crawl. Ain't been nothing but trouble. And you can, you can just break into the blues with that. And the psalm that we've just sung, that's, that, that's pretty uh, discouraging. It's pretty hard. It's a hard sell. Uh, Eliphaz here is having trouble with thinking that Job really wants to die He's actually really saying it's useless to pray. He's saying, look, you're just going to experience trouble, and that's it. There's a poetic allusion in here to the Ugaritic god of lightning, pestilence, and flames. And it's just really saying this is what happens. Que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. And it's interesting that in all Eliphaz's things, there is really no hope, and there's really no redeemer. There is just this incredible insensitivity. He goes on, but if it were I, I would appeal to God. I would lay my cause before him. He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. 
He bestows rain on the earth. He sends water upon the countryside. The lowly he sets on high, and those who mourn are lifted to safety. He thwarts the plans of the crafty so that their hands achieve no success. He catches the wise in their craftiness, and the schemes of the wily are swept away. Darkness comes upon them in the daytime. At noon they grope as in the night. He saves the needy from the sword in their mouths. He saves them from the clutches of the powerful. So the poor have hope, and injustice shuts its mouth. And here, he's now singing a hymn. He's telling him a poem. He's telling him this. God creates, God redeems, God acts. But again, you see what's happening. Because it's true that God is not unjust, it doesn't mean that everything that happens to you right now is therefore deserved or right. Sometimes we can go to people and we can tell people, you could be here and you could be really struggling with things and someone could tell you things that you know within yourself are true and yet in telling you those things, you feel even more condemned. God is just. Yes, we know that God is just. But what are you saying beyond that? Anytime when we we say something, we're saying, what are people hearing and what are we implying? So again, he goes on. He says, suffering is something that God uses. And it's a true, again, a truism. Verse 17, blessed is the man whom God corrects. So do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. For he wounds, but he also binds up. He injures, but his hands also heal. From six calamities, he will rescue you. In seven, no harm will befall you. In famine, he will ransom you from death. And in battle, from the stroke of the sword. You'll be protected from the lash of the tongue. And need not fear when destruction comes. You will laugh at destruction and famine. And need not fear the beasts of the earth. For you will have a covenant with the stones of the field, and the wild animals will be at peace with you. You will know that your tent is secure. You will take stock of your property and find nothing missing. You will know that your children will be many and your descendants like the grass of the field. You will come to the grave in full vigor like sheaves gathered in season. All sounds great, doesn't it? We have examined this, and it is true, so hear it and apply it to yourself. Commit yourself to God. And God will bring you through this, providing you don't despise his discipline. And also Eliphaz really says, providing you listen to me. You listen to what I'm saying. Suffering is a means by which God disciplines and chastises. That is true. By the way, one of the things that we should never ever do, there are people who come, you reap what you sow, um, that uh, uh, God uses discipline, suffer, and they, they see how this is being handled here and they say, okay, I need to back off from this. I'm never going to say anything like that. And I'm never going to make any judgment. I'm never going to make any scriptural pronouncement or anything like that. And that's just the devil driving you to the opposite extreme. It is true that suffering is a means by which God disciplines and chastises. Read Hebrews 12, verses 5 to 11. But I'm sorry. When you've lost all your family, all your children have died, and someone says, you are blessed because God is correcting you. They are wrong. It is, it, again, it is crass, unjust, wrong. Yes, God is holy. Yes, God is uh, wrathful against sin and evil. Yes, God allows disasters, but he also brings remedies. What happened to Job was not corrective. This was not saying, Job is going the wrong way and I'm going to correct him. It was not saying that. 
This was not discipline, but it appeared to Job at least to be injustice. It appeared to Job as though it was like correcting your child for stealing a sweet by chopping off their hand. It was crassly insensitive, again, verse 25, to say that if you are like this, then your descendants will be many when all his children have just been killed. What is wrong here is not so much the statement, it is not true, God does discipline, it is that it's not the whole truth. There's another side, sometimes God turns his face away. When you sit with somebody whose wife has just died and he says to you, why did God kill my wife? You do not say, well, it's just God's will. God did kill your wife. You're just going to have to live with it. I was asked that once, and I said, he didn't. He says, what do you mean? Christians told me he did. I said, no, he didn't. Not in the way that you think. You think God came along and went, zap, you're next. That's not how it works. He didn't. Why did your wife die? She died of cancer. Why is there cancer in the world? The more important question is, not the why, but what has God actually done about it? One man puts it this way, what kind of comfort is this, telling a man certain things he has believed all his days, speaking them in conventional religious terminology? And here's a challenge for all of us who are Christians. When there are things that we know that are true that we can put in religious terminology, I, want, I challenge you to think about other ways that you could speak those so that they weren't just religious jargon. Because I've heard it many, many times. We, we can't help it. We, we learn the language. We grow into it. And we just say things that we know what they mean, at least we think we do, and they're true to us and we feel with them, but the person who, who's hearing them doesn't know at all. So how do you re-explain that? How do you sit with someone who's going through so much pain and there's so much suffering? What do you do? Now, some of you may think I was being a little bit hard on Eliphaz and saying, well, actually, it doesn't seem too bad. That's not my judgment. Listen to this. Chapter 42, verse 7. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Job, as we'll see, asks all these questions about God and asks about the suffering and, and, and pleads for a redeemer. And Job is commended for having spoken about God what is right. And Eliphaz, who has spoken things that are true, but in a wrong context, in a wrong way, he's told, you did not speak of me what was right. Eliphaz is a dangerous man who speaks the truth at the wrong time and in the wrong spirit. His view of Job was wrong, and ultimately his view of God was wrong. In verse 27, the implication is that Job has turned away from the truth. Hear this, apply it to yourself like we do. Someone says, the blindness of spiritual pride, the arrogance of the overconfident, and the sins of those who are unteachable and thus incapable of recognizing God. You be very, very careful. There's only one place more dangerous than when you're wrong. It's when you're right. Be very, very careful. I have done this loads of times. I am an incredibly arrogant person in so many ways. I always like to be right. I always want to win an argument. I always want to have the last word. And I always am right in my own head. Why would I say it unless that were true? But it doesn't make me right in God's eyes, and it doesn't make me right in the context. It doesn't make me right in, in what I'm saying. I think that 
Job has no difficulty in agreeing with the doctrine. A lot of the doctrine that's said here, he has the difficulty of applying it to his particular circumstances. And I think the way I would describe this most of all is just simply this. It's how I entitled this sermon, Cold Comfort. It's cold. It's cold. It's heartless. It's wrong theology anyway because it's a simplistic and mechanical view of God. There's no room for a developing relationship. There's a predictable, manageable, understandable God. And those of us who believe absolutely that the Bible is the Word of God, that it is, uh, you know, that there is correct doctrinal truth, and we must do that, and we should do that, but we have to be really careful that we don't then turn that into a box in which we put God and say, well, no, that's it, I've got it sussed. The God of the Bible is far bigger than the God of all our theologies. It is not to say that the theology doesn't matter or understanding doesn't matter. It's precisely because he is bigger that it does matter. Eliphaz presents a God who is perverse and unjust. And that's the hardest thing that Job has to bear because there's a loss of certainty about the goodness of God. That's why in counseling and in outreach and in helping people and in, 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 in sharing together, we need to be careful Oswald Chambers puts it this way, the pseudo-evangelical line is that you must be on the watch all the time and lose no opportunity of speaking to people, and this attitude, he says, is apt to produce the superior person. It may be a noble enough point of view, but it produces the wrong kind of character. It does not produce a disciple of Jesus, but all too often a person who smells of gunpowder, and people are afraid of meeting you. Who are the people who have really benefited you? They are never the ones who think they do but there are those who are like the stars or the lilies. There is no notion of the prig about them. It's the kind of pseudo-evangelism which is always talking at people. So unlike the New Testament evangelism, says Oswald Chambers, that made Huxley say, I object to Christians. They know too much about God. Now, you need to think about that very, very carefully. We're not saying you have to go along the line and say, oh, we can't know anything about God. Yes, we can. We can know about God because of what he said to us in his word. But what we need to be very careful about is coming across as the kind of people who think we've got God in a box and we know everything about God. We need humility when we speak to people. Our God is awesome. Our God is great. Our God is beyond our comprehension. Therefore, when we are communicating, we are wanting to point them to him. We are not saying we've got it all sorted out. Job has to love God for himself. Eliphaz says, you do this, you will live, then you will love God. Job is being tested. The test is that he doesn't know this, and he doesn't know what the test is. And I think that, I'll finish this off by just simply saying all of this, that this all comes back to Jesus Christ, because we look for a meaning in life, we look for a meaning in suffering, and, and the only way that we can find it is through Jesus Christ, the best of men, the most cruelly treated, and the most deserted by God. Isaiah 53 says this, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. I am absolutely certain that there were people who knew that God was just, who knew that God used suffering, who could give you all the right answers, who looked at Jesus on the cross and said, He must have done something dreadful. He deserved it. He deserved it. They looked at Jesus, and in the name of God, they judged him. 
We have to be, that's why we have to be so careful. Men saw a man cursed of God. God looked on Jesus and saw his appointed servant. This is my beloved son. With him I am well pleased. You might look at someone, and this is where the health and wealth prosperity gospel gets so wrong. You look at someone, wow, hasn't God really blessed him? They're married, they've got lovely kids, they're millionaires, they've got great jobs, they're in a fantastic church. Hasn't God really blessed them? And then you visit somebody who's seriously ill, who's living in poverty, and you think, wow, what, what did they do wrong? What happened there? And that is just so simply, completely wrong. I think for me, what I take out of these passages, these words of Eliphaz, is it's just there's so many warnings to myself as a Christian who studies and thinks about God and thinks about all these problems and all these issues all the time. And, and it's, it's just a real warning not to be arrogant, not to be proud, not to be defensive, not to be aggressive, and perhaps above all, not to be cold not to have everything sussed and and fixed and so on. If you're here and you're hurting, then all that we can do is weep with you. We we can't fix you. It's back back to Coldplay. We can't. We can't fix you. But the, the absolute amazing thing is that Jesus came and Jesus died and Jesus identified with us, and Jesus experienced, and that is who we come to. In our suffering, we come to Jesus. In our frustration, we come to Jesus. In our doubts, we come to Jesus. I can't fix you, but I know a man who can, and that's Jesus Christ, and I commend him completely to you. Now, there's more to say on that, and I mean, said a lot, but it's skimmed over an awful lot as well, and uh, I do in the providence of God, I didn't plan this out, but tonight we're going to look at the New Testament application of this in 2 Corinthians 1, um, which is called, I'm calling it the, the comfort of Jesus Christ. And we're looking at how Jesus Christ brings us comfort and that we ourselves can then comfort others. And the two passages actually gel together really well. But if you want to hear about that, you'll, you'll have to come tonight. But I, I do encourage those of you who are not Christians you may say, well, I don't believe in God, or there's no God, or I'm not sure, I don't believe in trust in Jesus, and so on, and say, but I can't because of all the suffering in the world. Let's say there's no God. There's still suffering in the world. People still lose their jobs. People still die. People still experience abuse. Lots and lots of different things. You ultimately have no solution to that. You just, you're like Eliphaz. You just say, well, that's the way it is. It's just the way it's going to be. If you are a Christian, that's different, and I want to appeal to those of you who are not Christians to turn to Christ and to those of us who are Christians, to think about the Christ that we follow and to think about how best we can commend Him to other people. And we just ask the Lord simply, Lord, teach us who You are that we may communicate who You are to those who are in desperate need of You. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, 
please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.